It's good to see everybody. It's good to be here. My name is Pastor Brandon Briscoe. I'm the pastor of the college and young adult ministry here at Midtown Baptist Temple. And uh, I, am, I am going to be preaching this morning. Sam was out of town for the last few days, and Pastor Sam deserves a break from time to time. And so um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here and to open God's Word. Uh, the last month and a half or so, we've been in 1 Corinthians in the college and young adult ministry. And so we're going we're gonna to stay there today. And, uh, you know, first of all, Corinthians, uh, it's an incredible book because it, it basically addresses in detail so many of the things that our modern church struggles with. And so reading it and studying it produces a lot of insight that the, the contemporary church can learn from. The church in Corinth in 59 AD, which is when the letter was written and sent, was a diverse group of people. Um, I think we can, we can resonate with that. Like we look around the room. Um, and we did this recently in, uh, in Kaya, but I think it's worth repeating here. Uh, show of hands, if you were born outside of the United States or your parents were born outside of the United States, just show of hands. All right? Wow, right? That's probably in this room, that's probably about one-seventh, maybe, of the room. And uh, that just proves, again, that this is a diverse congregation. People from lots of different cultures, lots of different backgrounds. And that would have been true in Corinth as well. They were comprised of Jews and Gentile believers, poor and rich, and even masters and slaves attending church together. Can you imagine that, right? And with all these divergent backgrounds, backgrounds coming together and the general you know, naivety of the church, it was a young church, only seven or eight years old, uh, that resulted in the potential for a lot of division, a lot of confusion, and a lot of discord. And uh, if you study the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, what you realize is that there's at least seven different possibilities of division in the church in Corinth that Paul has to address. Divisions over spiritual authority. Divisions over sexual sin, divisions over legal offenses, divisions over marriage and singleness, divisions over spiritual gifts, divisions over liberty in the church, and divisions over wealth and social superiority. And with all of this drama, Paul had a very unique way of cutting through all the noise. We know that about Paul, right? He's, he's not afraid to say it how it is. And what we learn from Paul is that with each one of these potential problems, his solution was time and time again to point to the power and the authority of the cross. That the answer, the answer lied in the gospel. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, argues that to emphasize the cross is to overcome division and find victory in ministry. And this is true. This is true for us as well. The message of the cross, the power we all need to overcome the struggles that we face is right there in the message of Jesus Christ. And all the things that we struggle with as a church, all the things that we see in our, in our world around us that tries to creep in and divide us, all of the, 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 the arguments and divisions that we see in the world, we know that that's seeping in even to this body. The answer to all of those things is for every one of us to individually determine that the focus of our lives will be the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will be the only thing that we know. And so as we closed out 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in Kaya, uh, Paul has just finished expressing how the message of the cross, it may be foolishness to the world, 
isn't it? Right? We know that the gospel message for most people, most people in the lost world, in the secular world, it's foolishness. But what's foolishness to them is power to us. And despite the fact that many people will reject the gospel, God has empowered us, his people, to speak out and to silence the wisdom of the world. And the way that Paul puts it in chapter one is that the gospel itself confounds the wisdom of the world. And that word, that word confound means put to silence. And so the, the gospel message, the cross, actually has the ability to silence all of those intellectual, secular, academic, uh, feeling-based, psychology-based, politically-based ideologies that seek to undermine the gospel. The gospel itself actually undermines it. The message of Christ is power. And it's so humbling to know, it's so amazing to know that he's counted the foolish, the weak, and the, the despised. That's us. He's counted us worthy to do such an adventurous work in his name. We are completely unqualified. We don't deserve it. We all know our own stories. We know our backgrounds. We know the sins that we've committed. We do not deserve the right to represent a holy and righteous God, and yet, he's chosen the foolish, the weak, and the despised to do this work. So the question for our sermon today is, specifically, what does it look like to let God's wisdom and power take the center stage? What does it look like? How does it manifest itself? So many of us are so good at putting on spirituality and putting on what we think Christianity is supposed to look like. But very few of us are actually familiar with what it means to let God's wisdom be lived through us. How do we as a church, as we continue to grow, I mean, look at, look at the room, it's getting full in here. You know, it won't be long before we have to tear out the balcony and we have to seat people upstairs during uh, the A and B service. That's a very exciting prospect, isn't it? God is adding to this church daily such as should be saved. And the thing about that is that as we continue to grow in number and in knowledge, there's a potential for us to grow more and more arrogant and proud. As though we've done something. And so what does it mean for us to grow in knowledge and influence without growing arrogant and proud? What does it mean to do that? And Paul is going to give us a framework in chapter two of how to hold ourselves and speak in a way that protects us from the destruction of pride. Because you know pride is destructive. It comes before the fall. How do we avoid that? And how do we promote a virtuous ministry? Today's sermon is entitled Hiding in the Gospel. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5 in particular is where we'll be camped out. Before I get into the sermon, before I pray, I want to just acknowledge for a second um, that this is the one-year anniversary of the loss of Mark Trotter. <clears throat> and... Um, I don't know uh, of a better person that lived what we're going to be talking about today. <clears throat> there, there wasn't an ounce of arrogance in him. Uh, he's probably one of the very best speakers that I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, the way that he could grab an audience. Uh, he was uh, wise he was smart. 
His ability to, to approach God's word uh, scientifically, intellectually, uh, was really uh, without compare. I mean, he was a man of great wisdom and, a, and, and, and ability. And yet, despite that, he was one of the most humble men that I've ever met. <clears throat> and the focus of his life was the gospel. And he was a man that hid in the gospel. And so, uh, you know, I, I even as I'm speaking right now, I recognize there's probably people in the room who are not familiar with Mark Trotter and, and maybe you've never heard him preach before. Um, throughout the week, um, M- MBT is going to be posting a bunch of his old sermons on Instagram and, and we're going to try to be celebrating him on our social media a little bit over the week. And, and if you get an opportunity, take some time to hear a sermon or two from, from Pastor Mark. He was a blessing to us um, and we want to make sure that as we enter into prayer this morning, praying for the sermon, that we're also praying for the Trotter family. Uh, we know that those wounds are still fresh and, and that the loss is still new. And so we want to pray for God's grace upon them. And so let's, let's bow our heads and let's do that right now. Can we? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we're grateful. We're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful that we can even talk about the cross. Uh, we don't deserve it. Uh, it was a gift that was bestowed upon us that we will never live up to. Uh, there's just no way. What you've done is astounding, and it, uh, it causes us to marvel at your great love uh, to send your own son into this world, uh, to put on flesh, to live among us, um, to endure what he was never intended to endure to give over his life, to give his blood. Um, there's, no, there's no amount of time that can be given to thanking you for that. And so, Lord, we just confess that we desire to be covered in the reality of the resurrection. And that the only thing we have to offer you is our faith and our yielding with the hope that we would reflect, even in just a small way, the love and the affection that you hold for us. So help us this morning as we look to, to learn what it means to hide in the gospel. But Lord, with that as well, I just want to, uh, I want to say thank you for Mark. I want to say thank you for his love for us. And Lord, the, the, the prayers that he prayed for us and the time of study and, and preaching that he, he gifted us with, Lord, we want to thank you for that. And uh, Lord, we pray that his influence would continue to resonate in this body for decades to come. And Lord, we pray for his family this morning. We pray for a, a peace that passes understanding. And we ask that, that, that Lord, today, that they would recognize that to honor uh, the legacy of their father would be to, to live for you with everything they have. And so use Justin Trotter uh, as the pastor of Cali Harbin. Use him mightily. Uh, to, to, to share the gospel and to disciple uh, hundreds and thousands of people. We need you this morning, Lord. We love you. Midtown Baptist Temple loves you, and we need you with us this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's begin by reading. I know from watching Sam that there's water in here somewhere. Score. That's a jackpot, right? A big water bottle? Is that rare? That's a blessing. All right, let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, 
When I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Amen? So, Let's begin here by talking about how we ought to prefer the gospel. Uh, man, uh, over a decade and a half ago, I was, I was a 23-year-old man who uh, had just gotten married, uh, who hardly knew how to pay bills, uh, didn't know anything about life. Um, Eva really was much better at, and uh, much more mature than I at those types of things, and so I was learning all those things. And Sam and Chris Best asked me to lead the middle school and high school group here at Midtown Baptist Temple, if you can imagine. And so I found myself by the age of 23, 24, preaching every Sunday morning to a room full of very bored middle school and high school kids. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine, I, I, uh, I was very concerned about my ability Right? I was very concerned about, you know, I came from Kansas City Baptist Temple. I, I sat under the preaching and teaching of Sam for several years, under the teaching of Jeff Adams, and then at Midtown Baptist Temple, we had, we had Chris Best, and then soon Kenny Morgan, and these are some of the best teachers and preachers that, that I knew, and I had no idea what I was doing. It was very difficult in my mind. I felt as though I needed to live up to some sort of standard, some sort of expectation, and that was a pressure I, I, I felt every week when I prepared and, and every time I came to preach. And uh, I think that a lot of us often grapple with this very same notion, don't we? If many of us are honest, we carry, we carry more, uh, more concern about how we come across or, or how we sound or how people receive us than we care about the actual conveyance of the cross. And that's where I was stuck. You know, Paul has something to say on this matter. The Apostle Paul begins in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians by reminding the Corinthians that when he came to them some eight years earlier, that he came with the exact opposite pressures than that of a young 24-year-old Brandon Briscoe. The exact opposite pressures. He came to Corinth with a desire not to be sophisticated, not to be refined in his speech, not to come across as eloquent. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 say? It says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom. The church in Corinth would have been able to testify to the posture and tone that Paul took, uh, took with them as being particularly humble. So if you, you think back uh, eight years earlier, you can see this testimony in Acts Paul came to them, remember that you can remember names like Crispus and Gaius, 
right? Names like Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos. These were some of the ministers that were with him eight years earlier when he first entered into Corinth and he was doing that ministry. And if, and if you were to ask them at the time, how was it that Paul came to you? How, what, what was it that his ministry looked like? They would have all testified of the fact that he did not come with eloquence of speech, that he did not come in pride, that he did not come as what they were used to in Corinth. Because you have to remember that this was a Greek society and that the city of Corinth was highly influenced by academia and the philosophers of the time. And among the Grecians, what they would have been used to in in their orators were men of very refined speech, men that could command a crowd. Men that, would, would, that people would want to flock to, want to follow. Men that, that would, would pay money in order to follow after these teachers. And so what they were used to in their culture was following men and listening to men that were particularly intellectual and eloquent in their speech. And Paul came to them the exact opposite way. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul recognizes their view of him, and many of the detractors in the church of Corinth referred to Paul the following way. 2 Corinthians 10.10 says, his bodily presence weak and his speech contemptible. I'm, ouch, right? First of all, bodily presence weak? I mean, now they're talking about like just what he looks like. I mean, they might as well have been like, well, he's ugly as sin, first of all. He clearly hasn't been working out. He's not eating healthy, right? His presence is weak. His bodily presence is weak. And his speech contemptible. In other words, it didn't match up, right? It didn't match up to their expectations. But listen, according to Paul, the way in which he spoke was a matter of calculated choice, And I want to suggest to you that he he didn't come this way because he wasn't capable of being eloquent. It wasn't because he wasn't capable of being entertaining or intellectual. He came this way because he believed it was the most necessary thing for the gospel. Many would say that Paul was not suave or stirring in his speech. And a lot of men, you know, in the pulpit will even suggest that Paul may have not may not have been a great speaker, but let's be honest with the facts, if we can, for a minute. This was a man that was trained with the most expensive and prominent Jewish education that money could buy. He was a pupil of the most famous rabbi of his time in Gamaliel. He he, uh, He was taught the Jewish law. He was taught finance. He was taught philosophy. He was taught public speaking. And he was elevated in the ranks of the Pharisaic council from a very early age. That was not because he was bodily weak and contemptible in speech. This same man, in Acts 14, was used by God to confound the people of Lystra, and by his miracles and the nature of his oration, was declared to be the messenger God, Mercury, The people in Lystra were convinced because his speech was so powerful and God's use of him was so great that he was actually Mercury come from heaven to visit upon them. They thought he was a god. He had to actually convince them that he wasn't. 
Paul was also more than capable of lecturing and arguing among the most esteemed philosophers of his time because we recognize from the book of Acts that he went and taught at Mars Hill and walked away with several converts from Athens. See, Paul was no chump and he was more than capable of sounding eloquent and speaking with power. Now, I believe the evidence suggests that our man Paul, though he may not have been as impressive as Apollos, right, was more than capable of dignified speech. And he was more than capable of presenting himself in Corinth and and everywhere else he was as the Hebrew of Hebrews, a man of excellence and wisdom. So why didn't he? Why didn't he? Why would a man with this gift in rhetoric refuse to employ it? What strategy could be gained by debasing himself and lowering the style of his speech? What would be gained from that? Well, he explains it here in verse 2. Let's continue on. And I, brethren, when I came to you and came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you uh, the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I want to say this. I don't believe for a moment here that Paul's speech would have been any less bold. I don't think he knew any other way than to be bold in his speech. I believe that the content of his preaching would have been no less substantive. I believe that all the doctrines were there. I I believe that he preached all the things that he would have preached everywhere else. He was very familiar with the scriptures and he would have taught them with clarity. Though what Paul changed was his personal portrayal and the tone of his delivery. That's what he changed. Why? Because Paul knew that the expectation of Corinthian culture would be to expect the pride of an orator. So he resolved in himself to do the exact opposite of what they expected. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he do the exact opposite thing of what they expected? Because he was determined to prefer the gospel by communicating in a way that robbed everyone of the opportunity to praise him. He didn't want anybody to pat him on the back. He didn't want any any, uh, uh, good job. He didn't want any praise of men. See, he was concerned that a culture that was obsessed with teachers would somehow come to him in preference of him, preference of his teaching, preference of his discipleship, over preferring the gospel, preferring the cross, and preferring Jesus Christ. He did not want to get in the way of Jesus. He chose to let the persuasion of the gospel be be sourced in the terms of the cross rather than the pretense of his speech. He chose to display himself in a counterintuitive way to change his natural posture in speech in order that the gospel might be the one thing that gets all the attention. So that leads us to our first key point, and that's this. Our gospel is more important than our agenda or our our identity. Now I'm saying that, but very few of us actually believe this. Okay, so it's a very simple point. 
But I think what makes the, the point profound and what we're learning here is that very few of us actually believe this or act this way in our life. Our behavior wouldn't suggest this. Because agenda and identity in our world today are the, the main thing. In 2022, that is the main thing, is that everybody has their own unique truth, that they have their own unique identity, and that everyone needs to acknowledge it and accept it. And we've become obsessed with this, and it has crept its way into the church. And we are a church that's more concerned with personality than we are with the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that we've become addicted to knowledge rather than addicted to ministry. And I believe that many of us would rather sound smart than see souls saved. And I believe that many of us, if we're honest, would rather be right in an argument than reveal the son of righteousness. And that many of us would rather be highly distinguished than actively discipling. And many would rather hold to a network of conspiracy theories that tie together some philosophy and ideology of the world, world than hold fast to the form of sound words. And I believe, if we're honest in this room, that rep represents many of us. More concerned about what people think, more concerned about how we come across, more concerned about our own perspectives and ideologies than we are about whether or not people come to recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to save us of our sins and to set us free. And when I look at my life, I know with great conviction that so often I would rather be able to look in the mirror and say, good job today. You're smart. You did well. People like you. That I would rather be able to do that than say, God was glorified today. Church, the gospel must be first. We are so often just like the Greek philosophers in Corinth, opinionated, self-important, and seeking to amass personal disciples rather than disciples of Jesus Christ. I mean, let's talk about discipleship just for a second. Some of us are more concerned in our discipleship relationship about being in charge and sounding smart and having all the answers than simply letting the text of God's word be glorified in the life of the person that we're investing in. And that can't be. If we're not careful, careful, we as a people will neutralize the power of the cross and we will supplant it with the power of our pride. God, forgive us. MBT, we must be determined to let the gospel be all we know and the entire purpose of our being. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, for Christ sent, uh, sent me, this is Paul speaking again, sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 
In other words, our intellectual ability and our skill and our pride can get in the way of the cross itself. It can. In 1 Corinthians 2.5, it says that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, right? So this leads us to this so, so very important next key point, and that's this. Hiding within the shadow of the gospel is absolutely liberating. It's liberating. Hiding there is liberating. Whenever, so let's just use this situation this morning, me being right here for some ridiculous reason, right? I was asked to preach this morning. And uh, that's kind of nerve-wracking. It just is, you know? I'm used to being down the street with Kai. That's what I'm used to doing. And so anytime you're asked to do something new, it can cause a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear. And, w- and when you feel that fear, right, and, and you're concerned about how people might perceive you, <clears throat> the answer is never in knowing more stuff. It's not really, as much as I want to be prepared and I want to know the book and I want to to be able to understand it and be able to communicate it, the most important thing is for me as an individual to learn to hide behind the cross because it was never going to be me to begin with. And that, friends, is absolutely liberating. It's freeing, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Not to have to have all the answers or to be able to prove everyone else wrong. I mean, I think some of us are convinced that our Christianity is just, like the substance of our Christianity is to prove everyone else wrong. Man, it's freeing to not have to do that. Isn't it a relief to not have to be the authority on every single matter? I don't have to be the smartest person I know. Isn't it a relief to know that when the world is confusing and we run out of answers that Jesus died and rose again for our sins? We don't have to be important or smart or eloquent to know that we're loved by God and useful for his kingdom. And this is a profound ministry principle for us. And it should free us from the pressure of a high-pressure world. Listen, MBT. We don't need to be the smartest or most impressive ministry in Kansas City. We're not competing with anyone. We don't have to be concerned about what people think about us. We don't have to be the best dressed pastors, as I was reminded of this morning. (laughs) By the way, it's Pastor James' birthday. So we need to make sure to say happy birthday to him. Uh, but, but, but Pastor James is not afraid to tell me that he thinks that I, that I undershot the dress this morning. <laughs> we don't have to be the best dressed or the, the best looking or the most entertaining. We don't have to be the most entertaining praise ministry in the city, do we? We don't do LFBI so that we can be the most smart group of people. That's not why we do LFBI. We have to learn to stand in the shadow of the cross so that God can have his way with this ministry today, tomorrow, a decade from now, 
See, you know why churches, you know why churches like ours don't make it? You, you know why churches like ours fail 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years down the line? Because pe- people forget the way. They forget the way. They forget that this was never about them to begin with. That it was always about the cross. And if we find our, our rest in the shadow of Jesus Christ in the gospel, we will never be in danger of running this whole thing aground. It requires humility. So let's look more specifically at Paul's demeanor. Okay, he, prevent, he presents his, his body uh, and, his, uh, and his mind here for us to see on display. So his, his first notes uh, are here, is his mindset and demeanor, verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Weakness and fear and in much trembling. Paul presents himself first and foremost as weak. Now we pride ourselves in being strong. As a society, as Americans, we like to imagine ourselves as strong, okay? Strong in our resolve, strong in our mind, and strong in our bodies. This is why men that are, you know, past middle age, still convince themselves that they can play sports with the young adults. It's a bad idea, just wanna tell you right now. You cannot, you cannot. You're not strong enough. But Paul Paul actually came to Corinth with the intention of presenting himself as being weak. Now why? Why Why did he want them to see him that way? Well, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 gives us some insight. Here's Paul's, here's Paul's mind behind that. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities than the power of, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now we all know that, that Paul actually had an infirmity. He had some sort of sickness or illness or thing that he carried around with him that he was convinced that God had put into his life some sort of ailment that kept him humble and kept his bodily presence weak. And he embraced that. But do we? Do we? Do we, do we, do we see ourselves as needing to be particularly polished or look a particular way or meet some sort of cultural expectation or when we come into this place or we come into ministry or, or, or meet with other people or in our workplace even, allow ourselves to be weak that the cross might be astounding. The power of the cross, the power of the gospel in our lives might be astounding in contrast to our very weakness. Next it says that he was fearful. Well, wait, 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 wait. Christians aren't supposed to be afraid. Fearful of what? what would he be, how would he present himself in a fearful way? Well, well, fearful of Christ. The Bible repeatedly connects obedience to the fear of God. Deuteronomy 13.4 says this, Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. 
Deuteronomy 17, 19 says, And it shall be with you, and he, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, what? To keep all the words of, his, of this law and these statutes to do them. The prophet Samuel calls out to the nation of Israel and he says the following in 1 Samuel 12, 14. If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. Now what's that telling us? Is that Paul feared God and because of his fear of the Lord, it caused him to be obedient to the Lord. And in obedience, he stewarded the things that God gave him. And so what I mean by this is that stewardship demands fear. And fear produces stewardship. And in our ministry, if we are going to steward all the things that God has given us, the relationships and the investments, then we must present ourselves as fearful, fearful of the Lord, so that we might be good stewards of all the things that God has given us. We've got to learn to be fearful of God. And so he presents himself in Corinth as fearful. Next it says he was trembling, trembling. Isaiah 66, 5 says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my namesakes, said, let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to, you, your, uh, to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. So what we see here is that, that when we minister the gospel, we ought to be trembling. We ought to tremble at the idea of the responsibility that comes with teaching the very words of God. This should produce in us bodily weakness, a posture of humility, a demeanor of brokenness and lowliness. It should produce in us fear before God that we might get in the way, that, that God forbid, we might get in the way of his very words with our pride and that we with trembling might gently and humbly present the simple truths of who Jesus Christ is. That is why Paul presented himself the way that he did. Paul's outward weakness, fear and trembling were the natural response to his inward desire to not get in the way of God. And that's leading us to this next key point, number three. Our demeanor should reflect the reality of our insufficiency. Paul did not proudly vaunt himself among the Corinthians. He did not demand honor or authority. He was not overly concerned with people's thoughts of him or his persona. He was concerned that he may, in pride, mismanage the great commission that had been given to him. And we must learn, we as a body, as, as people, as individuals, that if our demeanor reflects the reality of our insufficiency, then we are, we are leaving room for the gospel to be the sufficiency that people need. And I want to say that again. I want to say it in a way that you might, that you might understand better. 
if we come into this place or we enter into the world or wherever we go, if we're de determined to present ourselves in the reality of who we are, that we have to recognize that we're insufficient for any work, any work that God has called us to, that we are not capable, we are not able, we are not eloquent, we are not smart enough, we are not knowledgeable enough, we do not have the ability to save any person. And when we recognize that and we lower ourselves, then we leave space for Jesus Christ to do the work that he wants to do within us. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. The next thing is this, that the gospel was in Paul's speech. It, it, it permeated the way that he spoke. Paul's perspective not only impacted his demeanor, but it also impacted the content and design of the words that he spoke. Verse four, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstra demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice that Paul says his responsibility was not to entice. That word entice means persuade. Okay. <clears throat> Many of us, we believe that our job is to persuade people to follow Christ. Like we convince ourselves of that, don't we? That if we have the right argument prepared, I mean, a lot of times we even pray this way, right? We pray that God would somehow give us the apologetic necessary to reach a person. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But we've got to be careful of what that means in our heart and in our mind. Because it's not your speech, it's not your ability that entices men. See, Paul says he wasn't supposed to entice anyone, but he was supposed to demonstrate the power of God. And I love that preaching or sharing the gospel doesn't have to be alluring. It doesn't have to be performative. It doesn't have to be an intellectual debate. I mean, I'm, let me just talk to some of the young men right now. I mean, some of the older men too. It doesn't have to be intellectual debate. And I would say that if it becomes an argument, you've lost. If sharing the gospel has become an argument, man, it's funny, and we'll just keep going, won't we? We'll just press in. You arguing good enough and winning the debate, you've won nothing. That's not a demonstration of God's power. People getting saved because of the simplicity of the gospel is the power of God. I was talking with Sam Jr., Sam Miles' uh, son, uh, on Friday about the UMKC job fair that he went to last week. And we were talking about, you know, he's graduating soon and he's looking and thinking about his career choices and he was talking about how the, the prospect of interviewing for a job, uh, how stressful that can be. Right? The idea that, you know, he's a bit of an introvert, 
I mean, I think Sam is, is great socially, but every young person goes through this, right? You can remember when you were trying to get your first career interviewing and how nerve-wracking it can be because we recognize that in the world, what the world expects from us is confidence, right? right? You gotta, you've got to present yourself in a way that convinces them that you know exactly what you're talking about and that you deserve that job. And he was talking about how just thinking about it makes him sweat. He'll, be, he'll do fine. But the point is, is that's the way the world thinks, right? But what we're presenting here this morning is this idea that Christians don't have to live under that burden. <laughs> you don't have to be the best and the brightest. In fact, that gets in the way. Sam is right. It can be stressful when all eyes are on you to be perfect. The expectations of the world are unfair. But why do so many of us treat our ministry that exact same way? So many of us talk to people in this church or, or, or the lost world or even our disciples, the people that we're discipling, as though we have something to prove. The beauty of the cross is that I don't have anything to prove. Like that's, that's the best thing about it. Is that all the pressures of my life to figure it out and to know the best way and to be the best person and to make all the money and to know all the stuff. Man, Christ did everything on the cross. He became my wisdom. He became my speech. It says, your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. All the proof you need is in the humble recitation of thus saith the Lord. That's all you need. Believer, all you need to know is, say, is to say book, chapter, verse. I know nothing else. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Okay, I want you to understand the impact of that, that statement. An earthen vessel is like a clay pot made from the dirt of the earth. You know where they get clay, right? They get it right out of the muck and the mire of the earth, right? And we are like earthen vessels in the potter's hand. We never deserve to be plucked up from the earth. We never deserve to be formed or molded. We never des deserved the refining fire of God. We never deserve to be chosen. And yet he chooses in these earthen vessels to put his excellency and his power. It is not in you. It is in him. And that leads us to this. Our goal is not the mastery of our faith. It's faith in the master. It's not in the mastery of our faith. Because you can't. You can take LFBI on repeat for the rest of your life. You will not master the faith. You will fail. You will struggle. You will have sins that, that, that follow you and chase you between now and the grave. You will be insufficient for, for as long as you're on this earth. You will not master the faith. You will not make yourself good enough. That's okay. That's not the point. The point is that all of our faith 
and everything we have and every bit of our purpose and every bit of our yielding and every bit of our love and every bit of our mind is stayed on the master. That's what we need. And so Paul became nothing so that Christ could become everything. And, And if we're going to be effective ministers and effective in our church, then we too need to humble ourselves and recognize that we are nothing. So how do we do this? How do we live hidden within the gospel? <clears throat> we have to remember three important things, and this is how we'll close out. Three important things. The first thing is you have to get the right objective down. You have to have the right objective. And the right objective is this, is to see sa- uh, souls saved and discipled. That has to be the objective. Are you actively sharing the gospel? Okay, let's be honest with ourselves. Are you actively daily or weekly, sharing the gospel? If not, is it because you have idols in your life? Is it because you have some other agenda or personal identity that's getting in the way? Why aren't you sharing the gospel? Perhaps the reason that you're not sharing the gospel is because you're afraid of how it might negatively impact the way people see you. Okay, but we've already determined that that's just, that's doo-doo. That's nothing. And so what are some practical ways in which you can learn how to put yourself low and make the gospel the priority? Well, we have this thing called hit the streets. We have this thing called hit the streets where we take a team out on Saturdays every month, sometimes twice a month, and we go to campuses and we go to neighborhoods and we practice putting ourselves below the gospel. We practice putting ourselves, we hide ourselves in the gospel and we put our personalities and our agenda and, what, and our identity aside and we go and we talk to people in great humility, it's what it requires. And we begin to practice putting on Christ. And you can practice doing that too. And that would be a great place for you to start. But we have to have our objective right and that is that our, our responsibility in this life is not to be smart or to be the best minister or the best pastor or the best preacher or whatever it might be. Our responsibility is to the Great Commission. Next, the objective requires dying to your carnal agenda and identity. Practicing dying to self is not not an easy thing. I was telling, I think I I was having a conversation with someone this week and, uh, I said, dying is hard, but death is free, right? That's freedom. Dying can be really difficult. Learning to die to self and mortify your flesh, man, there can be a lot of pain associated with that. But for the person that's, that's dead, that's just freedom. And so my point is, is this, is, is that if, if you allow yourself to be mortified so that you can stand a dead man before God, you can be used any way possible. You guys have all seen um, Weekend at Bernie's? Right? You become malleable for the Savior if you're dead. So how do you die to self? Lower yourself when you choose ministry responsibilities. Okay, I want to explain that real quick. What I mean by that is some of us are too proud to accept certain responsibilities in this church, and that's a shame. Lower yourself and take responsibilities in this body that, that, that look below what you believe your gifting is. That's not how the body of Christ thinks. 
If you haven't joined a cleaning team, or you haven't helped with a, with a, a, a work day down at the Meyer building, or if you're not doing, the, if you're not, some of you think that you're, you're too far along in your faith to be a part of something like Kid Town. God forbid. God forbid that type of thinking. We need to lower ourselves in our ministry responsibilities. We need to lower ourselves in our prayer posture. This is really practical. I mean, I know some of you guys have knee problems or hip problems, and it's not so easy to get down on your knees when you pray. But you know what? There's something to getting on your knees when you pray. There's something to laying on your face before the living God and choosing to take the lowest and most contrite form of posture that's available to you that you might in the presence of God remember who you really are. There's something to that. You need to lower yourself when you speak with other pe- people. Choose to condescend. Choose to frame your words in a way that other people will, will understand and get. Choose to talk to people. Oh God, I should say it, I should say it because I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe it of myself and I don't want to believe it of this church. But God forbid that we would ever be too good to talk to anyone in this body. That anybody that would walk through those doors is someone that you couldn't lower yourself for. God forbid. Let's lower ourselves. Let's die to our carnal agenda and our identity. The third thing is this. The strength for the objective is not in you, it's in the gospel. The Great Commission's success was never contingent on you. And the only requirement to participate is a submitted will. If you want to see God move in you, stop trying to be right and start sharing the gospel. The gospel's what's right. Stop trying to be right. Stop trying to be smart and start sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop, stop trying to be perfect. Quit trying to be perfect. Quit trying to show off for your pastor or fellowship leader or your disciples. Stop doing that. Quit trying to be perfect and start praying. As a ministry, let's lower ourselves so we can be in a place of desperation. And in that place of desperation, that's where revival lives. That's where revival lives. I want to invite the worship team up to lead us in a, in a season of worship. You know, there's, so there's people, there's, there's two different kinds of people everywhere we go, you know that? There's believers and there's non-believers. And so I want to first address the people that believe, the people in this room this morning that believe. Um, if you recognize that your perspective has been wrong and that your mindset and your demeanor hasn't reflected the reality of who you are in Christ, and you know it's time to repent of pride. And you recognize that you have a need this morning to hide yourself in the gospel once again. Would you please come forward and pray with somebody? Would you please just do that? Just grab a hold of somebody and and be humble enough to do that and pray with someone and ask that the Lord would, would help you to find your identity in the cross. There's another group of people in here that just don't yet believe. 
and we've done all this talking about the gospel, and we've been talking about the death, burial, and resurrection, and you realize for yourself that you don't have that power yet in your own life. You don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior, so all the things that we've talked about in terms of the life of a Christian, the life of a believer, and the ministry of a believer, that doesn't quite make sense to you. And what you know you need is the gospel itself. You need to lay hold on the gospel. You need to hide yourself in the gospel for the very first time. Well, the Bible has something for you this morning. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you want the power of the gospel in your life, it's time to believe. It's time to cast off from your cares and the pressures of this world. It's time to let go of your identity for the very first time. Repent of your sin and call upon the name of Jesus Christ. God, would you save me? And if that's you this morning, would you come forward? There'll be counselors up here that know the word of God and they can just simply and humbly point you to what the Bible says about what it means to be set free from our sin. And if you could be humble enough to do that this morning, I beg you, it'll be the greatest decision that you ever make. Let's pray and let's ask God to have his way with us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Really, there, Lord, there is, there is none other like you in the, in the pantheon of gods, in the, in the religions of the world, in, the, in the, the, the thought systems and the philosophies of the world, there is nothing like, nothing comparable to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so God, I, I pray this morning that you would move us, that you would compel us by the gospel once again. And Lord, if there's anyone this morning that needs to make a decision to follow you afresh or for the first time, Lord, I pray that they would come forward and they would meet with the counselors. And Lord, that they would be honest with themselves and honest before you. And Lord, you would set a fire in them a humility in them, a lowliness in them that would allow them to be set free, be liberated to do all the work that you've ever intended for them, to be exactly who you purpose them to be. Lord, I, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. Amen.